This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Does being practical mean that we don't take steps in this country to deal with climate chaos and bring world leaders to bear? Does being practical mean that we continue to prop up a legal system that is unjust in every stretch of the imagination, that bears its weight down on black men and black women, and then by extension, if you are Hispanic or indigenous or poor? Does being practical mean that we don't say to the American people that you deserve better than what you are getting? That's not the kind of practicality we want. Does practical mean that you you hold fundraisers and wine caves with Swarovski crystals with billionaires who want to control this system. Does practical mean we continue to go with the status quo while 500,000 people sleep on the streets at night? That's not practicality. What the American people in this country need, they need somebody that is unabashed and that has the courage and the conviction to stand up for them and to call out the rigging of this system. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. You're going to sing to swim, you're going to learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're going to learn the truth. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Passes a three-strike law and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. You just don't give up, just don't give up. And now, Janice Graham. And good evening to all of you who have joined us here at Our Common Ground. We are here. It's Saturday, and where else would we be? Thank you for joining us here in the Truth Sanctuary. And for those of you who are listening and would like to join us, in the chat room where El Michelle Odom, who is our production administrator, is moving chairs around and making rooms up front, so you better hurry up. It's blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. We like to see people in our chat room who um, <clears throat> hang with the discussion all through this broadcast. And again, thank you for joining us on Saturday night. Some people ask me, why, why do you broadcast so late on Saturday night? It's because I understand the pulse of black households. 
on Saturday. I mean, I know that there are those of you out there who understand that when you were growing up, Saturday was what day? Saturday was go to the grocery store day. It was the clean up day. It was uh, getting things ready for the new week because Sunday was a day that was spent trying to be a little bit reverent, going to church, going to Sunday school, going to the Missionary Society programs, um, going to the beach, uh, going to the theater, the movie theater. I I, I grew up uh, go, uh, in a in a in a time where the movie theater was a segregated theater in the community where I grew up in, which I will admit was West Palm Beach, Florida. The black community had its own movie theater with balcony and velvet ropes and the best popcorn you ever wanted and hot dogs. The best, but many times we didn't have enough money to buy buy hot dogs. We had to buy popcorn, uh, the best popcorn you ever tasted. And um, so Saturday by 10 o'clock is when people are sitting down and they're thinking about what's going on at their jobs, kids have gone to bed, the house is clean, the the greens for Sunday are already ready, so everybody's taking a little taste. And um, so 10 o'clock on Saturday um, may be the time that uh, you sit by and have a glass of iced tea or a glass of Long Island iced tea, <laughs> however you take it, and relax and begin to think clearly. I don't know. And when I was growing up, it seemed like uh, everybody thought that a house had to be clean in order for you to think clearly, to be able to see progress in your life. So, <coughs> uh, pardon me, excuse me, as those who who have been with us over the last month know that I am having a severe chronic problem uh, with a, a, a that creates a cough. And in this studio, we don't have a cough button. Only my hand across the microphone or mutant, whatever. And you know how it happens at at our common ground, if you hit the mute button, you might forget not to unmute. But <clears throat> so that is why uh, once we came off of the daily show, we decided that Saturday night at 10 p.m., even the, the daily show was 10 p.m., uh, because people are sitting back and it, it, it gives us an opportunity to look back at the day, look back at the week, and that's what we're trying to do this week at Our Common Ground, which is why we have titled this episode this week in Black America. And one of the things that we want to do is to look at some significant kinds of things 
that have happened during this week that really give us opportunity to be informed. And one of the things uh, about looking back at the week is that we also use it as an opportunity to prioritize. But we are glad that you have joined us. We have quite a few people who are on the board, on the listen line, and if you'd like to do that, that number is 347-9852. The three things, three very important things that we are going to cover in these two hours, one is to look at the uh, Nina Turner versus Chantel Brown race in the 11th District of Ohio for the House of Representatives. It is the seat that was vacated by Marsha Fudge when President Joe Biden appointed her the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, Nina Turner, as many of you know, is a friend of this program. She has uh, been our guest numerous times, and if you listen to any of those uh, interviews, you recognize how much I admire and respect her, both as a woman and as a politician and as a change maker. I was quite disappointed when she lost this race. Uh, here is a woman who is homegrown. Uh, who has had a long-term major uh, elected uh, roles in the state of Ohio. She at one time was the chair of the Senate of the state of Ohio. And that is where she really honed her, her political skills. You probably know her as she chaired the campaign for Bernie Sanders for president, and we'll talk about that. Uh, it is very unsettling to me um, what happened in that race, and I have concluded by looking at the numbers and looking at some of the um, news analysis um, that maybe it was a... Um, a ground problem, how that campaign managed the ground. But there were some other problems inside that race, and it had to do with um, internal politics within the Democratic Party, and we're going to talk about that. The other thing I want to, on the agenda for, for, for us in these two hours, is to look at uh, the issue of black agency. Who controls our black agency? We do a lot of discussing uh, discussion here at Our Common Ground about our agency, our, our, our rights and freedoms, and privileges as American citizens and the dubious and questionable 
ways in which we act out our agency has to do with the value and the structures under which we live our lives. Particularly, uh, this has come to 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 mind uh, in the last couple of months around the issue of what happened to the George Floyd crime spill, what has happened to the discussion about defunding and reforming uh, the police in America, what has happened in regard to uh, a number of voting rights, uh, voter suppression, the way in which the federal government has, or, or let me let me just put it real clear, the way in which the White House is fumbling the ball on uh, restoring the integrity of the Voter Rights Act and what was stolen by a corrupt and biased Supreme Court. Also, uh, and for those of you, you who do not know, Dr. Renoko Rashidi, a friend of this show and a personal friend, the famous historian, journalist, explorer, uh, passed on August 2nd. And I was very saddened by that loss, and we want to remember who he was and what he contributed because I think that... um, I think that what he was doing, this is a man who has traveled to every continent on the planet Earth. He has been traveled, studied, researched in every country on the continent of Africa. He has studied in South Africa, uh, South, um, South America, Latin America, uh, the Caribbean, and he has made such an immense contribution in our understanding our African selves, and we're going to pause. And I thank all of you for the really nice, I got a lot of nice emails on um, my tribute to um, uh, that I did last week. Um, and uh, I really appreciate uh, your your thoughts. Um, on 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 our work that we did last week. So what we want to do is we want to start with, um, I don't know if you are aware, but on August 28th, there will be a voice, a march on for voting rights in Washington, D.C. And um, in response to 48 states having introduced 389 bills that amount to shameful outright voter suppression 
and many of them have become law. These laws suppress voting methods that enrich our democracy and lead to high turnout, banning ballot drop boxes and mail-in voting. And the march is on the 28th, um, and in Washington, D.C., the major march, but there are marches in Washington, Atlanta, Miami, Houston, Phoenix, and many cities across this country. Um, so we want you to know that uh, there is pushback on these state legislators who are trying to push us back into Jim Crow. And that's March 28th. If you'd like to have more information, you can go to marchonforvotingrights.org. Marchonforvotingrights.org. And it's votingrights.org. March on, O-N, for votingrights.org. And find out if there are going to be marches in your community. One of the things that's really interesting is that there is a lot of discourse across the country, especially among progressives, the left, the liberals, the Democrats, about how democracy is dying in this country. And I certainly have no argument about that. But I think one of the things that is part of the duplicity of our consciousness in this country as black people is that we have to think about which democracy. Is it a democracy that they tout or is it the democracy for which there have been so many disillusionments for people who are black for people who are brown. And we're going to talk about that in the second hour. I'm going to try to really make this show tonight so that we can get calls in. We will not take calls that are troll calls. We will hang up on you immediately, so don't waste your time. Um, And you should write down the number in case I forget. 347-838-9852. Before we, um, some other things that I do want to mention to you is that um, if you're new to the show, uh, you, you know that I am a woman holding on and claiming her rage. I have been that woman since I was 20 years old. So that is who I am. I am claiming this rage. It is honorable, it is righteous, and it is mine. And, and here in the, the black truth sanctuary, that's, that's a part of black truth. I'm not trying to make any apologies for the, the ways in which I think I am a democratic socialist, I am a black nationalist, 
and black nationalism is not the same as white nationalism in reverse. It is not. So, you know, we can talk about that when we talk about agency. Um, we also, uh, this week, if we, if we look back on the week, uh, we also began Black August. And in Black August, we honor black freedom fighters, many of whom were killed by the state or imprisoned for defending black lives. It's a month that we set aside. I'm talking about the black nationalists. Yes, I'm talking about the black nationalists. Set aside time to reflect and learn about the legacies of black revolutionaries while we also at the same time try to rededicate ourselves to the protracted struggles against white supremacy, colonialism, capitalism, and imperialism. Black freedom activists study, plan during the month of Black August, and pledge to continue the work and fight for black liberation. Now, those of you who are saying, well, you know, I'm not oppressed, I'm, I don't need no liberation. You need some black Jesus. Because if you think that black people don't need liberation, call George Floyd's family. Call Tamir Rice's family. Go read some Glenn Ford. Go read some E. Franklin Frazier. Go read the story of Asada Shakur. So anyway, so uh, during Black August, it, it, it is our tradition, and it originated in, in California prisons in the 1970s after the deaths of uh, Jonathan and George Jackson and other incarcerated black men who sought freedom. So we have got to stop turning our back on this liberation. You know that on black liberation, you know that I'm always saying, trust your struggle. And if you can't identify your struggle, and the only way you can identify struggle is that you look across the street, then damn, do that. But trust your struggle. Um, <laughs> I, I really want to say, I wish, I wish um, Chauncey De Vega was with me tonight, because I really want to say the struggle is real. So Black August, and you need to teach your children about it as much as a part of their history as anything. Jonathan George Jackson, Fred Hampton, all a continuum all the way up to George Floyd. We need to understand that. And, and and have you all noticed why they're talking about democracy is dying and democracy has failed and democracy fell down or what? Uh, 
as they are talking about that in in your media, whatever media you attend to or listen to, have you noticed that they are not talking about mass incarceration? I mean, but you, but we're we're also talking about people who have capitulated to some kind of political ideology that does not serve their interest. The the other thing before we get started tonight, I know he is listening and I want to say a borigani to my friend Danny Walter Harris where a community came together because they treasured the contribution that he has made in this struggle using art as protest in the city of Boston. Day, the community came together, and I was so sorry that I was not able to be with um, my comrades in Boston as they offered a living memorial to Danny Walter Harris, a true warrior in the arts of New England and New York. And where else did Danny was? Danny was everywhere, Los Angeles. Um, a, A true warrior who used his talent and his skill um, to bring forth the word of struggle. I met Danny so many years ago when he was a young student at um, the, the Boston Arts College. And then he was a student in drama, and then he started writing plays about the struggle. Well, Danny's not dead. He's probably listening to this show tonight because he'll call me on Tuesday and say, um, <laughs> you should have had my bio. No. <laughs> and, 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 but this was the community came together to do a living memorial because Danny said he wanted to be real. And he did not want to be dead and trying to figure out what people were saying about him, how people really felt about him. So right there in Roxbury, Massachusetts, in the neighborhood where Danny Harris grew up, right on where you turn the corner, and that has always been like a blank space, in a rock formation, is now an altar in tribute to the work of Danny Harris. Brother, I am always so lovingly in admiration to what you have done, what you have meant to me, and what you have meant to my family, and what you have meant to the city of Boston. I am sure that Kevin White, who was your favorite mayor, (laughs) um, was laughing 
in, in well, wherever. So, Daddy, congratulations, and, and thank you for your contributions and for using your talent in the name of black liberation. So here we go, folks. Um, thank you again for being with us. Again, that address, if you want to come into our chat room, is blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, and only the strong survives in that chat room, I tell you. Only the strong survives. We see Michelle has taken her seat, and she's got her potato chips because she don't eat popcorn. <laughs> and and shout out to Alpha, who's probably listening. He is coming along, and hopefully we'll be back sometime toward the uh, end of uh, September and our oct- uh, the beginning of October. Thanks again for being with us. Here's some words from Dr. Renoko Rashidi. He wrote, Black man in America, you are racially profiled, the last hired and the first fired. You are discriminated against on every level. You have the highest unemployment rate and the highest rate of incarceration. You are the last one to receive justice in the judicial system. You are even typically the first one to get killed in the movies. Racism underlies your entire life from cradle to grave. Now, how can you tell me honestly when it comes to picking a mate that you don't believe in race, you don't see color, and you can't help who you fall in love with and then call me a racist for pointing it out to you. Let's be real here. Now, when Dr. Rashidi wrote that, I fell out laughing (laughs) because he scholar, historian, author, lecturer, always kept it real. He is an anthropologist and historian with a major focus on what he calls the global African presence. That is Africans outside of Africa before and after enslavement. He was the author of our editor of 22 books, the most recent of which was My Global Journey in Search of the African Presence, Asada Garvey and Me, A Global African Journey for Children in 2017, and The Black Image in Antiquity in 2019. As a traveler and researcher, Dr. Rashidi has visited 124 countries. As a lecturer and presenter, he has spoken in 67 countries. He has worked with and under some of the most distinguished scholars of the past half century, including Ivan Van Surtima, John Henrik Clark, Aza G. Hilliard, Edward Scobie, John G. Jackson, Jan Carew, and Joseph Ben-Johan. 
in October 1980, that's Dr. Ben, by the way, in October 1987, Rokono inaugurated the first all-Indian Dalit Writers' Conference in India. In 1999, he was the major keynote speaker at the International Reunion of the African Family in Latin America in Venezuela. In December 2010, he was president and first speaker at the Diaspora Forum at the Fessman Conference in Dakar, Senegal. In 2020, he was named the Curatorial and Academic Boards of the Pan-African Heritage Museum. He was a, tier lead, a tour leader, and at the time of his death, he was currently doing major research on the African presence in the museums of the world, and he was in Kemet. As a tour leader, he has taken groups from India, Australia, Fiji, Turkey, Jordan, Brazil, Egypt, Ghana, Togo, Benin, France, Belgium, England, Cote d'Ivoire, Nabia, Ethiopia, Kenya, Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, Peru, Cuba, Luxembourg. Cameroon, the Netherlands, Spain, Morocco, Senegal, the Gambia, Guiana, Misa, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, and Myanmar. Dr. Rashidi's major mission in life was the uplift of African people, those at home and those abroad. And tonight I am thinking about his daughter who lives in Paris. And she was 14 or 15 years old at his death. So it's my pleasure to allow you to spend some time with me and Dr. Renoko Rashidi. Um, I was looking forward to seeing him next month in Boston. I always hosted for him his lecture series at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston each time he came in. And he was just getting back into his research for After a Time, which had been suspended because of the pandemic. So it really is a pleasure, and I am looking forward to hearing his voice once again. You live. Thank you again for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Um, we are going to be meeting with probably one of the most important um, scholars of our lifetime, uh, Dr. Renoko Rashidi. We're going to be talking about his life and his work. Um, he is a historian, 
research specialist, writer, world traveler, and public lecturer who focuses on the African presence globally and the African foundations of world civilizations. History probably was likely a a subject that you studied in, in school, either loved it or hated it. But it is very important, and we need to understand the importance of our history and how it connects with the histories of other people and ultimately the history of mankind. If you don't know history, then you don't know anything. You are, as Michael Crittenden wrote, you are a leaf that doesn't know it is part of a tree. And what we're going to do in our visit with Dr. Rashidi tonight is to try to help you connect why it is important to know your roots. Sometimes we talk about knowing history, we talk about knowing our roots, and it is simply a superficial and artificial notion to us. Dr. Renoko Rashidi is the author of Introduction to the Study of African Classical Civilizations, published in 1993. The editor, along with Dr. Ivan Van Sertema of Rutgers University, the late uh, Dr. Sertema, uh, The African Presence in Early Asia. It is considered the most comprehensive volume on the subject yet produced, and a major pamphlet titled The Global African Community, the African Presence in Asia, Australia, and the South Pacific. He is a prolific writer and essayist and a contributing writer. Articles have appeared in more than 75 publications, and I'm sure that number is lowball. His historical essays have been prominently featured in virtually all of the critically acclaimed Journal of Civilization anthologies. Included among the notable African scholars that Renoko has worked with and been influenced by are John Henrik Clark, John G. Jackson, Dr. Ben, Dr. Chancellor James Williams, Dr. Asa Hilliard, Charles Finch, Finch and Dr. James Brunson, some names that you might know. And we certainly do not want to leave out uh, LaGrain Clegg and Dr. Jan Carew. As a scholar, he has been called the world's leading authority on the African presence in Asia. And since 1986, he has worked actively with the Delicts, Indians, Black Untouchables. In 1987, he was a keynote speaker at the first All-Indian Delites Writers Conference held in India and spoke on the global unity of African people. He has dedicated his entire life to African people, and we are so very, very honored to have him join us tonight. Renoko Rashidi, thank you so very much 
for joining us on Our Common Ground. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, sister. I'm glad you're you safe. You know, I'm and... so overwhelmed. <laughs> uh, I mean, every time I read about your life, it, it, and, and every time I see the photos that you post from every corner of the world, I think your life and your world is so much bigger than the average African-American who, who simply walks through and has distance from everything that you have seen. Well, you give me a lot of credit. I'm just a hard-working African. I fashion myself <laughs> no, a good historian. I don't let those successes go to my head. I feel very fortunate and very blessed, and it's always an honor to talk about the history of, uh, of African people. So thanks for having me on your show. Well, we're always reading about what you have to say about history and about African people globally and our roots. So tonight we want to talk about you for a moment, for some time. Tell us about your 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 youth and what made you become, you are obviously uh, just a, a lover of the history of people and the notion, the idea of being able to backtrack on on a journey of a people. What was your what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? What did your what inspired you? Who inspired you and how did they do it? Um a lot of it just had to do with the time that I was growing up in. I'm 58. Um been in California most of my life. I split my time now between Los Angeles and Paris and Toronto. But a lot of it had to do with the time that I grew up in. Um went to a school in South Central Los Angeles. I was among the first students out here to um, be a part of what was called Negro history classes. And, you know, that was way back in the day. I listened to the speeches of uh, the LPs of people like Malcolm X especially. And then later on I was influenced by, um, you know, the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey. As a high school student I read a book called Garvey and Garveyism. That was a big thing. And then the next really, really big thing was, of course, the university. And I um, initially attended California State University of uh, Northridge in Southern California. And by the time I finally enrolled, which was about, I guess, a week late, most of the classes were full. But I wanted to, um, I needed to subscribe to at least 12 units of classes. And so the only classes that were still available were <laughs> the Pan-African Studies classes. Apparently nobody wanted them. And all the classes I got were on African studies or Pan-African studies of some sort or another. I just fell in love. I had an um, extra credit assignment, and that is uh, go listen to a man named Stokely Carmichael. And this brother, of course, later changed his name to uh, Kwame Ture. And I was mesmerized, and he had a, uh, an organization. I joined a study group, and the first book we read uh, was The Destruction of Black Civilization by Chancellor Williams. And I was gone from that point. I knew that I wanted to be a historian, and I knew that I wanted to follow in the footsteps of those Africans who left Africa way before enslavement. And that really became my mission. That was 40 years ago, and 
I've scarcely looked back. When, when you when you read Chancellor Williams's book, um, I assume you were in university at the time. Yeah, I was a freshman, Cal State University at Northridge, and uh, it was a pivotal time. You know, I wanted to make the world a better place, and I became a political activist. But it wasn't long after that, I guess two or three years passed, that I just grew tired of arguing with people, you know, about political issues, historical materialism and dialectical materialism and spirit over matter, et cetera, et cetera. And I realized that maybe by being a historian, that was a way that I could make a real contribution. And I think I've done a pretty effective job. I've blazed some trails, and I think that the blood of people like Ivan Van Sertiman, Asa Hilliard, and John Henry Clark, and Chancellor Williams, and others, and Jay Rogers runs through my veins. I am them, and they are me. And they pass the baton to me just as I'm in a position of preparing to pass the baton to new generations that hopefully will do things that I never even dreamed of. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm assuming, and one of the reasons that I ask you about the uh, Chancellor Williams is that um, there is such a sense of mission of inquiry in his book. And why did you decide at that point to, to try to blend, and it seems in your career you have blended anthropology and history. Are the, can the two be dealt with, especially uh, from the point of view of an unrecorded history as you, as, or, or a limited recording of history of African peoples? Have, how, did you, how did you figure that out? Uh, well, the two went hand in hand. You see, while I was reading Chancellor Williams, I was also reading Malcolm X, and I learned early on in Kwame Nkrumah, and I learned early on that you couldn't live in the past, that no matter how glorious certain phases of our history might be, um, you can't go back and live in the past, but you can use the past as a basis and foundation and motivation for what you do now and what you're going to do tomorrow. So to me, there was never a distinction between concepts about Pan-Africanism and African history. Um, I kind of had the philosophy of Kwame Nkrumah that went, uh, that thought without practice is empty and action without thought is blind. A lot of us don't want to study, especially young people. I hear it all the time. I don't want to hear about what happened back in the day. Let's do something right now. And then there's another faction in our community. That's all they want to do is study. They want to read about the ancient Egyptians, black people in the Valley of the Nile. Neither of those are sufficient. Obviously, as a people, we're confronted with all kinds of problems. So you just can't isolate yourself in a room and read a lot of books and get on Facebook and show people how deep you are, how heavy you are, how profound you are. That's very, very shallow. But at the same time, you can't ignore our history and culture. And I knew that from the beginning, that you had to blend the two. So uh, for me, being a race man, it's always been a kind of a happy marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you did was that you taught African history at, at Compton College, and I'm sure those comments come a lot from your teaching experience. But how do you, you know, one of the things I want to uh, cover tonight is how do you begin to form your 
personal yourself around what you learn from history? I'm not sure if I understand the question, my sister. Okay. Uh, how do you, be, I mean, I hear you saying that in many ways, as you learned more about who you are and where you came from and how ancient Africa relates to you, to you how, do you be, how do you transpose that to students? How do you get people to change their lives and the way they look at everything based upon what they know about their history? Well, I think the most important thing is how we interest them in their history, you see. It's one thing not to know, but it's another thing to know you don't know and be comfortable with that. That's the, the troublesome part. So to me, the question is, how do you spark an interest in history? Now, I've never thought of myself as a Moses-like figure. You know, I don't think it's my job to feel like I have to carry the burden um, of making black people see things as I see it, liberating the African. I contribute to that. I think I will be a very, I, don't, I didn't teach history at African, uh, at Compton Community College. I organized what were called um, equal opportunity, I, I organized cultural awareness programs for the EOP program, I think equal opportunity programs and services. My job was to bring in various scholars. Now, I think that I'm an excellent educator, and I can be, in certain situations, a very good teacher, a master teacher. But I'm not going to beat you over the head. I'm not going to try and force something down your throat that you're not interested in. If you're interested in learning about African history, I'm your man. But I don't believe that I'm going to get my blood pressure real high by arguing with people who've already made up their mind that they ain't nothing and they don't mind the concept that they ain't nothing. I don't know if that makes sense or I don't know if that's being very arrogant, but I realize my limitations. And that's one of the reasons I'm so very good with my Global African Presence Facebook page because I can put a person out in a set. I look forward like Mitt Romney looked forward to firing people. I look forward to putting people out because I'm not interested in arguing. I want to work with people with an open mind and people who more or less see the world as I do. And if I can find that, then there's no limit. I show a lot of pictures. I'm very, very visual. I'm very engaging in what I do. But I also don't believe in forcing this mission on people who simply at this point in their lives are not able to see it. Well, one of the things, don't you think that, you know, you were fortunate in that you were introduced very early or young, um, the notion of uh, specific histories of African peoples and the, the um, import of what that means in terms of anthropology and in terms of language and how that uh, assist in, uh, in understanding the Afrocentric kind of thought that blacks in America can apply in in both their politics, culture, and 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 roles as parents and teachers. But 
one of the things that we haven't done a very good job of in this in, in this country in our community is focus on how we teach our children history, how we get them to understand its importance, and how we get them to link it to all the events that happen around them. Um, and and we have a lot of parents, uh, grandparents who listen to this show. How What would you say to our audience about how they can begin? Let's just assume that they want to, but they don't know how. I'm not going to assume that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we can assume. I think the vast majority of our people are not terribly interested in their history. I think that we have to be very, very basic, very, very fundamental. If that were the case, our black bookstores wouldn't be falling left and right. The scholars would be supported. People like Dr. Ben would not be in a nursing home in the Bronx, New York. Our legendary figure, somebody who's done more to popularize African history than anybody living. And so I do not accept the contention or the foundation that a large segment of our people are interested in their history. I think that what we have to do is work with those who are. But I do not see that as a large segment of people. That's something I would never, ever take for granted. Now, what I try to do is I try to speak to people whenever possible on the level that I perceive that they are on. I use a lot of pictures. I try to engage the audience. I think that our children need to see us read. I think instead of just telling our children what we think they should do, I think that we have to be living examples of that. Go to the lectures, take them to the lectures, engage in this information, um, put black art on our walls. I think they need to see us reading books about black people and black history and black history that goes beyond enslavement. And that's the tricky part. We are kind of in a box in a sense, and we see it during Black History Month. We celebrate certain African-American heroes. So I think that we need to expand our horizons, expand our consciousness beyond that. And I think that we have to be living examples and not just talk to, to our children. I think they have to see us actually engaged in the ritual, and we have to involve them as uh, an integral part of that. Does that make sense at all? Yes, it absolutely, absolutely does make sense, but uh, I think that one of the things, you know, I grew up um, in Jim Crow South, and I, and I attended segregated schools until I was in the ninth grade. So by the time uh, I was developed, during the time that I was developing my intellectual um, inquiry and just being inquisitive about everything. I had a basis from which to work. But I think that we're dealing with young people now in our community that, who don't have a basis from which to work. Uh, for instance, I knew about the transatlantic slave trade in elementary school. But our children don't get any of that right now. And that's our fault. I, I put it on us. It is our responsibility that we have allowed, uh, after all of these years, after 45 years of the passage of civil rights and Brown versus Board of Education and the whole nine yards, that we haven't taken control 
over having an Afrocentric curriculum in our schools, and we still allow our children to attend them. So I do I I do that, but I I do think that most of most parents simply don't have but have a basis from which to understand so, how is how important it is. Sister, let's check this out. Now, okay. I plan um, to really move a lot of my operations to Toronto. Okay, I love it there. I found a, a new vista for me. I'm very excited about that. Now, about two or three years ago, I went up there in February to do a series of programs, and the highlight of that program was at a Toronto Afrocentric school. The place was packed, standing room only, people in the community, students, teachers, you name it. It was one of my shining hours. Less than a year after that, that school was reorganized, and the African-centered impetus was taken away from that. And the reason was not so much coming from white institutional racism, but from other black parents themselves who seemed to have the attitude, I don't want my child to be African-centered. I want my child to be like any other Canadian. All of this emphasis on Africa is actually doing more harm than good. It creates a kind of a separatist, isolationist kind of mentality. And that is what I'm talking about. I just don't see a mass. I think that our, we want our children to succeed. But I think at this stage in our history, we really have to determine what is success and what is the purpose of education. Why do we send our children to school? And what do, I mean, real, real, real basic issues and what we want with them. I think that there's so much confusion within our community that we're unable to develop a cohesive kind of movement. Now, the African-centered paradigm has always been there, and I suspect that it will always be there. But I don't take an extra burden as a scholar and a historian to move the masses. My job is to put the information out there, and I leave it to, I leave it to a larger segment of our community to see how that information can be applied, because otherwise you drive yourself crazy. And I'm almost crazy anyway. I'm just right on the edge anyhow, and there's no point in me, you know, going over the cliff. <laughs> I I I think that you do have to lose your mind to come to your senses. Well, people all the time <laughs> on Facebook every day. I have a Facebook network of about twenty five thousand people. I think of myself, and I could easily have a hundred thousand, and Facebook would lift the restrictions. I think of myself quite immodestly as the Pharaoh of Facebook, and people email me every day. Baba Rashidi, Dr. Rashidi, Brother Renoka, what should I do? How do I make a contribution? And I say they're very, very basic. First of all, marry somebody who looks like you. I think okay, that's more that. important than anything else that black people marry other black people. Spend your money as much as possible with black people. You can't do it all the time, but try to do it as much as possible. Get involved in our children's education. Believe that you can make a difference. Support the scholars. Support the activists. Do the most basic things. It's not really rocket science. And I think that we have to encourage our people, push our people, but again, as Louis Farrakhan said, we have to love our people more than they love themselves, and that's not always an easy thing. 
and you and and one of the things that um your your timeline is one of the um places that I go on Facebook uh as one of the first place, places that I go when I hit Facebook during the day is because you have such I and I really think it is your understanding of the journey that we have been on and who we are as a people that makes that causes you to love us so much you are so gentle you are so wise and sage in what you have to say to the people who you communicate with on Facebook well and that makes I appreciate all that, but I'm also quick-tempered, I'm impatient, I'm easily frustrated, I don't have a tolerance for what I consider stupidity, I know that sounds very, very arrogant, and um, um, it's difficult, it's difficult being a conscious African, there's a sense that you're out there by yourself, you're on your own, you see, you know, some of the greatest scholars we've had died, not just scholars, but even activists, died with a broken heart. Marcus Garvey, it is said, died of a broken heart. I've heard stories about scholars like J.A. Rogers, and I personally talked to Chancellor Williams, who wrote that magnificent book, Destruction of Black Civilization. It's easy to find yourself very, very embittered. You know, you can see (laughs) as you move along Why Moses broke the tablets at the footsteps to the promised land. I can hear him saying, screw these people. I know Moses must have said that many times in Hebrew, and I feel the same way. So you work hard. You love your people. You love what you do. Um, You have an an iron resolve. I'm going to do this no matter what. But you also don't want to have the illusion that there is a mass movement. You do what you can. You try to work with as many people as you can, and hopefully when you go to bed at night you feel good about yourself and you feel like no matter what the results were, you tried your best and you made a serious contribution. And for me, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And that was my brother, my friend, Baba, Dr. Renoko Rashidi. If you'd like to listen to the entire interview, uh, we spent an evening with Renoko Rashidi, and I have also added uh, interviews that I did with him one-on-one in our archives at ourcommonground.com. Dr. Renoko Rashidi, father, brother, now a beloved ancestor. We'll be right back. So I'm asking you for the truth. I know the truth. I know enough. So what I'm asking you is, what is your in-game? When you don't know When you should have done, but you didn't. When you should have, but you don't. When you can't find, won't ask, can't say what you want. Who are you? When you recognize that you have accepted, tolerated, and accommodated stuff from them or him or her that has diminished yourself. Just who are you? 
every white man in Cusper, Georgia, standing out there in the yard. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. called white swing voters, the folks who had defected from the Democratic Party in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement, in order to get those folks, um, you know, they were going to have to begin proving um, to that segment that they could be tougher on them than the Republicans had been. And, um, you know, I think that's a part of our political history that is painful, I think, for the black community to face, um, but it's necessary. is our common ground. Broadcasting bold, brave, and black. There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending. When you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. What we see before our eyes, the sky is green and the grass is blue. But one thing you can't deny, these people are, these people are sabotaging this country. And also, on TruthWorks Network, the best of political pushback. Go for it, Alpha. The Alpha Show. How do you wake up the entire African American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in the journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. 
We need somebody who's shaping the way Occupy shaped the discourse around wealth inequality, the way Black Lives Matters shaped the discourse around vicious legacies of white supremacy as it related to the repressive apparatus of the nation state in regard to this trigger happy police and going on with our precious young brothers and sisters. The people's on my block, I'm as real as can be. Word is born. Taking moves never been my safe. So Teddy, pass the word to your intrusive. I'll be sending the call and stay around 3.30. Queen Pin and Black. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to Our Common Ground. And we thank you for being here with us on Our Common Ground. Um, We are going to shift gears now and go into our segment to talk about the race between Nina Turner and Chantel Brown in Ohio 11th District for the House seat vacated by Marsha Fudge. One of the things that happened to me this week in black America was I was shocked that Nina Turner, who had been the voice of progressive politics, who was a perfect candidate to be a comrade in the squad in the United States House of Representatives lost this race. It took me by kind of a surprise, with the exception of I was on a conference call on Sunday night, and over the weekend last weekend, a whole the whole state of Ohio had been plastered with these shiny nice uh I was on a a, a zoom call and they were showing us the the leaflets shiny, really nice shiny glossy uh both sides Chantel Brown leaflets And then I noticed that there were some other things that were trending on Twitter. And it had to do with what obviously was talking points of the Democratic establishment. And then there was a bombardment on Facebook and Twitter Instagram, Twitch, and that other thing um, that I I just never can figure out. Um, it's like private chatting or something. I I couldn't figure out that I got invite. I got like six invites to go talk about this race. Um, Michelle, help me out. What's the name of that thing? It, it's a uh, 
chat thing, a new chat thing where everybody goes privately to talk about everybody else. But anyway, I was stunned by this loss. And I, I want you to know that I did try to contact two people to bring them on tonight. Uh, one of them was Matt Karp over at Jacobin Magazine. The other was Matt Cox at The Intercept, who had a good eye on all of this stuff on this race. And... um Neither one of them have responded by the time we came on the air. And what Matt Karp wrote was, Nina Turner's primary loss this week stings. But a close look at the numbers makes clear her loss wasn't the result of a bold left-wing candidate being unable to win over black voters. On the contrary, In black working-class districts, Nina performed well. Um, And in so many ways this week's, uh, it was a Democratic primary, which, of course, Chantel Brown is sure to win, felt like a bittersweet recurrence of the Bernie Sanders campaign, the left candidate, Uh, gained national prominence as Bernie's most compelling surrogate. And the opponent, Chantel Brown, won endorsements from Hillary Clinton, South Carolina Representative Jim Clyburn, and the Congressional Black Caucus PAC. And and, and these battle lines were kind of similar to what happened with Bernie Sanders. But when the results came in on Tuesday night, the outcome was familiar, too, with Brown winning by six points. The Democratic establishment, the donor class, Matt Carp writes, their media acolytes could take another victory lap. The post-election takes were familiar, too. Um... In the Washington Post, John Hahnman wrote, Nina Turner's loss in Ohio means Biden doesn't need to keep caving to the left. Interesting, folks. It was very interesting. Now, for those of you who do not know what I'm talking about, let me give you a preview of who Nina Turner was and why this was caught even me uh, by surprise. I'm going to find that clip. I put together some stuff for you so you understand why this was so important. Take a listen. 
These are the same people that if the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was still alive when he stood up before he was gunned down and he said to this country, he said the evils of this country, militarism, materialism, poverty, and racism. Those are those same people. So now if President FDR had listened to those people or if the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King had listened to those people, we would not progress as a nation. So every generation we got the naysayers, baby. But what the folks of this country need, they need, they need somebody that's going to stand up for them. But what this, what people need is to be able to call upon somebody that's not going to capitulate. Why is corporate America so worried about this race? Why are they spending all of that money on little old me? Inquiring minds want to know. They understand that Nina is prepared to take on the powerful specialist. Are you ready to hit the ground and hit the poles and be a force for good to turn this nation around in such a way that we can have a vision for everyday people being empowered? We need to make a pledge to be in solidarity, to make sure that what they think is going to be a low voter turnout is going to be a huge You have the potential in Ohio to really fulfill the Rainbow Coalition, working class people, white, black, of different races and ethnicities. Let me just say to you that my only special interest would be the people who put me there, not the oil industry, not the pharmaceutical industry. The corporate interests, they benefit from trying to keep us separated. How disgraceful it is that these big money interests, they don't have to disclose who they are. Foreign and huge sums of money. This is not about who's left and right or Democrat or Republican. The only issue that should matter is the D and the R, that's to do the right thing. All the very, very rich are becoming phenomenally richer. They're spending their money on out of space while children in this country go hungry. And Nina has lived that experience, the hard months of academic exercise. She knows where she came from. You don't have enough fight. You don't have enough people on the guts take on powerful specialists. I know Nina, I've known her for years. She is a fighter. They are investing millions to ensure that our voices are silent. We gonna make sure that they understand that big money can't defeat big ideas and conscious-minded people. You hear me here from us soon. We are going to do great things together, and I've always said that throughout this campaign, we are going to continue to do great things together. And all of you are on that list of helping us do this. We are going to continue to travel all over this country to ensure that progressives are not left alone when evil works. Hello, somebody. We don't make sure. And that was the candidate Nina Taylor and uh, Turner. And, and and don't get it wrong. Nina Turner up until last week raised more money. And this is what we have to understand about political campaigns. Nina Turner raised more money up until last week in the reports than Chantel Taylor, uh, Chantel Brown. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, Chantel Brown is the current Cuyahoga County Council member and 
the county Democratic Party chair. At the time that she was running, she was facing a potential ethics probe for her past work supporting millions of dollars in contracts awarded to companies run by her partner and campaign donors. Uh, And I checked out a story that was published um, Tuesday before last in Newsweek and Daily Poster that the Ohio Attorney General's Office took interest in um, the state auditor's office where officials agreed the matter should go before the State Ethics Commission. And I also heard uh, some inside stories today that all of that had to do with the the the, the the big stadium that was funded by public dollars in Cincinnati. It's very interesting. Uh, and all of these revelations come with just one week left, with one week having been left in the contest between Brown and, and Turner. Um, Bernie Sanders um, stumped for her, members of AOC, members of the squad. She got endorsements that were incredible. But then something else happened. There was a lot of party tension. The Democratic establishment, the Democratic Party establishment was supporting Chantel Brown. It was very clear. Then something else happened, and you might remember how this happened with the Joe Biden campaign. The majority whip, Jim Clyburn, from South Carolina, and well-funded super PACs rallied behind Brown And, and and I'm just going to say my opinion is that this was more about the squad than it was about Brown. This is more about trying to destroy the Democratic Progressive Caucus in the House than it was about Brown and... I also want to point out that people are questioning how Cleveland's Jewish community got behind Chantel um, Brown. Um, Turner was heavily favored to win the district. With two, polls just two months ago, showing showing her up 35 percent, she won the endorsement of Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson. She won the endorsement of Cleveland Plain Dealer, which is always a deal maker in Ohio. But she managed to alienate. 
many of the Jewish constituents, voters in Ohio, specifically around predominantly Jewish communities in Cleveland, with what they called anti-Israel rhetoric and her promises to join the squad. (coughs) Excuse me, I, I, I really apologize for that, but I'd rather not I'd rather not choke myself. It was the city of Beechwood, a location of Dan's Deals headquarters, and residents got the word out in person fundraising, and that's where the groundswell began. (coughs) Excuse me. Okay, why don't I hold on for a minute and get rid of this. Many of you are probably wondering why I'm doing so much pre-recording for this show that I've never done before, and now you know. But we will hang in there. So I'm trying to explain this to you. Um, Ohio has open primaries, so you can decide at the polls if you want to vote for the Democratic or the Republican primary. And when the Beechwood, the city of Beechwood, got together and started bringing in pro-Israel PAC money, um, (coughs) (coughs) the polls started making a turn. I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, I am going to be uh, taking a breath from this show while I try to heal. You know, I don't want to sit here and explain to you what is happening. But I did um, did say last week that I had recently had a biopsy in my face. Uh, having to do with an irritation to my throat, blah, 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 blah. The biopsy was benign. Uh, But I had the same problem. (laughs) They actually had me making calls into Ohio. And I had a one call was like 10 minutes because I had explained to the lady about why I was doing all this coughing. But anyway. So I'd like to hear from you because one of the questions that I have to pose in all of this is who really lost in this race? Um, The Democratic majority for Israel, which is a hybrid PAC, a super PAC, that has spent $1.2 million on ads supporting Chantel Brown and opposing Turner in this election, had a slew of donors who made ample donations to Republican candidates and causes. You know, one of them was the notorious Leonard Feinstein, who donated $25,000 to the Democratic majority for Israel 
on June 14th, and he's made large contributions to National Republican Senatorial Committee, the Republican Party of Cuyahoga County, and to committee, am I making sense, and to committees supporting Republican Rick Berg's 2012 campaign for Senate. And some Republican donors, it is reported, made direct um, money into these PACs rather than directly to um, to uh, Brown. So the question is, how can we have a Democratic candidate who is the chair of the Democratic Party in her county who says that she's a Democrat but is accepting that kind of Republican money. So I, I just I think that it's it's really interesting how the Democratic political machine has worked in in this regard. Uh, it's really, really interesting. We'll take your calls on uh, who who were the losers in the Ohio District 11 of the House and who are the losers nationally because I've been saying it's a devastating loss not only to the people of Ohio but also to the people of black people in the nation. Uh, as you probably have concluded from the clip that I pay, played, Nina Turner would have been a very important and significant voice in the House in the in the House of Representatives. And so when I pose the question, who, is, who are the losers? And, and the reason that I say that is because her opponent, who I do not know, her opponent has the same kind of track record of elected political officials that we are seeing who lie down to lobbyists who compromise the interests of black people and brown people and red people in the House of Representatives. And we can't afford not to have, to lose our comradeship in our government especially in, in in the era, and I keep calling it the Trump era, we are still in the Trump era. So we invite your calls. Our number is 347-838-9852. And you may disagree with me about this, but I'm I'm concluding that I'm looking at what Chantel Brown has been able to contribute 
to create and to accomplish as the chair, as a chairperson of the Democratic Party. I'm looking at all of the reasons why the Democratic Party establishment would want to stop a Nina Turner because Nina Turner is a person who would have called out all of the people who need to be called out peer-to-peer on accountability to black people. Now, I see some people have their their hands up, but they were having their hands up in the hour that we weren't taking calls. So I'm going to try this and see if we can't get some, some voices in here on this race. Hey, hey Jettis, how are you? Can you hear I'm me, glad Jettis? to hear from you. Yes, I yeah, can hear you. Yeah, right. You ain't, you ain't. You ain't you ain't yeah, unlocked your Twitter. You ain't unlocked your Twitter. I done slapped you a couple of times up in the uh, up in the Twitter. Yeah, I know you yeah, got your feelings I, hurt. No, not at all. You know, you know, you know that's not my style. You know me. You know I don't pay it no mind. But listen, no yeah, you got to stop I'm talking shit to doing. me on Twitter. I I need thinking about you, Dennis. Go on. How's it more doing? <laughs> How, oh, they're, how they're all doing, doing well. They're all okay, doing good. well. They're all... Oh, okay, listen. Let's let's go at this right quick. It was outside money that destroyed what Nina Turner is doing and was trying to do. That's just the reality of it. I think from what I read through Pascal Robert, it was the white voters that caused her the issue and the problem in losing. As far as what Brown's gonna do, Brown is just gonna be a num another hat. She's not gonna do anything. Now the real issue is, I'm sorry to say it to you, Janice, because I know how hard you worked over these last fifty some years about the civil rights, our voter rights, and all of this. Thank you for your service, first and foremost. But it's over. Thank you. It's over. Democracy is absolutely over in this country in regards to black people having the power to vote in the manner in which we should at this time, 50 years since the passing of that bill. And what I think people don't realize is Biden told you it was over indirectly, but I don't people caught it when he said, hey, you just got to go out there and work harder. That was his code for telling you, I'm not going to do nothing about the filibuster. I'm not going to put pressure on Manchin and Tennessee. And I'm not going to do the necessary things to do what LBJ did to make sure that it passed 50 years ago. So unfortunately, you know, people don't want to accept it. It's a wrap. It's over. Now we got to figure out what are we going to do with the manner in which there's just going to be total, total suppression of our votes, that we're going to lose everything in 2022 and 2024, and that always remember this, 
those white people in power right now, they go still be in power, or they go be retired with a fat pension and a lobbyist job. But it's it's really I'm sorry to say it, it's over for us as far as voting is concerned. Now we don't want to accept it because it's our will to fight. But I'm saying this right now, our will to fight has to go in another direction on how we're gonna survive and what's to come in our existence in this country. Well, I, I, I think you're right, and I do, I haven't read the whole thing, but uh, Pascal and I talk every day, so I got a sense as he began to write that piece on why Nina Turner lost. But I, I think we do have to hone in to be more spe- specific, Jay. We can't just say they put in the money. I just went through who they are. I, and, I don't want to call white people and, names and Jews and all that. I, I'm past that stage now. I'm, I'm telling you about the past. I ain't telling you about no, no, no. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm telling you about the PACs. That's where the money came from. Right. And those are corporations. Those are Jews. Um, the Israeli lobby. Um, you know, the military, military, the democratic majority for Israel is a super PAC. Right. Okay. So we need to call it what it is. And here's the thing, Jay, that I think we need to start paying real close attention to. And I'm hoping that. Um, Matt Cox over at Intercept and some people at the Daily Beast or wherever the hell will begin to start looking at who is supporting the efforts of these right-wing evangelical state legislators in all of the states. I mean, I, 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 I told you how many how many states there were um, in in all of the states where these people are going to operate? I think because it's they are the people. They are they are funding. I think it's corporations like the Koch brothers. I think it's indirectly, but it's not as obvious as one would think Amazon, Walmart, all of these big corporations, I think, play a small role in it. Because, see, what nobody wants to be honest about, this is about protecting the interests of whiteness. This is what it's really about, and nobody just don't want to say it. Because white people who basically run this country, built this country, and all of that, are not going to allow a minority to come in and because they outnumber them now, run this state. All you got to do is look at South Africa. It's, it's, it's some of the same principles at play, and we just, we just don't understand it. 
I mean, I feel bad for people like Latasha Brown. I mean, I, I like her. I think the sister's a hard-working sister. I love William Barber, and I can't stand pork chop chicken eating preachers. I don't. I have no love for them. I love what they're trying to do, but I think they live on this premise that there's some sort of fairness, and morally, if you act and behave in a certain fashion, that white folks are acting and behave in a certain fashion, and I'm sorry to say it, it don't work like that. It, it, all that Reverend Barber is doing, I love it. I, I, I respect it, and I even donate money to it, and I don't donate to nothing. But the point of the matter is I don't think they really, really understand what's at play, and I don't think they've come together with the sense that they got to figure out how they got to deal with this situation beyond what they're doing right now and how they got to come together collectively and really do something drastic to make it do what it do. Because in all actuality, sis, come January of next year, if certain things ain't in place, it's a wrap. It's a wrap. And once 22 happens, 24 is a given because, remember, all of these voter suppression things are going to be in place, and it's just going to continue. And the Supreme Court not going to do anything to change it. And then what happens when you get somebody like that crazy governor that you got, DeSantos, in the White House? Because Trump ain't going to get back in the White House. Don't let, don't let nobody fool you with that nonsense because he got too many problems. Face it, but somebody like DeSantos, who, like I told you on your Facebook page, I don't know why the hell you don't go back to Boston, cause that man tried to kill you. I'm sorry to say, he really tried to kill you. I mean, seriously, no joke, no jokes inside. I don't know why you don't go back. I know but, you love here, here, being home, but damn. Here, here's another question. Um, uh, here's another question about uh, what's happening across the country because DeSantis wants to be the loudest voice for the MAGA crowd because he wants to run for president in 2024, is I'm not understanding why there aren't citizen groups who are starting to bring suits against some of these elected officials. I'm not understanding that because part of it has to do with the issue of sedition, the other, I mean, like DeSantis, uh, Jay, DeSantis at this point is a menace to society. He is placing no by, by, the, by the authority that has been vested to him, he is placing people's lives. He's an animal. I mean, th- this whole thing about the mass, for those of you who do not know, we have a, um, we have a, uh, a governor of Florida who has issued an, a law which bans school districts from requiring masks. And if you ask me, Jay, I think anybody who hasn't been vaccinated ought to be limited in the way in which they can move in the public, that well, they cannot. Well, see, Go ahead. Well, see, I, dis- I disagree with you on, the, on this sense because – there's more to the vaccine than we know. And secondly, my, my position is this. There's alternatives to the vaccine that's never discussed that should be discussed. It's just like when you just said 
about why people ain't putting together groups to deal with these governors and people like DeSantis, because for some reason, people don't listen to people like yourself who put forward those ideas. If you want to have a conversation with Reverend Barber and you said these same things to him, he would probably listen. He would probably speak to others, but I guarantee you collectively they wouldn't do it, and it's the right Mm -hmm. thing to do. But the Mm -hmm. unfortunate thing is we live in a society to where as people have as one say the mic. So when they have the mic, they think that they're the smartest people in the world. Now, I can say to you, and maybe you'll listen and maybe you won't, you could Tune in to Brother Kiti Awanu and what he's doing on LIB Radio in regards to the vaccine and vaccination. And at that stage, you may get a different idea and a different perspective if you open-minded. That's why I never get, I never have an issue with a person who takes the vaccine. I just have an issue with people who take the vaccine and then don't want to be open-minded to respect people who don't want to take the vaccine because they feel that they have an alternative, or even deeper, for these individuals who never talk about an alternative to the vaccine. Because at that point in time, me as someone who understands certain things in history, I got to question your motives. See, if you said, I I hope you have the vaccine, but if you don't, have the vaccine or don't want to take the vaccine, here goes some alternative. Then I respect you. But if you just come at me about, oh, there's no other alternative, you got to follow the science, you got to do this, you got to do that. No, I'm not listening to you because I don't trust you. That's just straight up. And I think that that's the problem with what's happening in America. We just trying to make it to where, as like what Don Lemon did the other day, it was madness. That's the type of thing I don't respect because you're not even open to have an intellectual conversation with somebody who may have done the research in regards to the vaccine that has an alternative that they feel comfortable. And this is supposed to be America, right? We're supposed well, J- to have choices. Jay, Jay, I am talking about actions that we need to take. Let, let, let's just talk about masks. I wear the mask okay. all the time. Okay. I think that parents who refuse to send their kids into a school maskless, and they defend that shit ought to go to jail because that is putting your child at har- in harm's way. Now, let me tell you the alternative And they're doing it for political theater. They're doing it for no. political theater. It's all political games. But and people are dying. This, you know what I say to that, Janice? Is, I agree with you, but I say to this. If you don't want your kid to wear a mask, homeschool his ass. Don't send him to that environment that you don't agree with to maybe put other people's kids in jeopardy if they're asking you to wear a mask. 
I don't believe in that fight. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there on that one. I'm going to support the school in a sense that if the school says, please wear a mask, here is the option, that's it. You got to do the option. It's just like my old lady's granddaughter. She don't want to wear the mask. So what, what did we do? We sat down and we said, listen, she don't want to wear the mask. Let's just homeschool it. Now, the things that's involved with homeschooling, hey, listen, like I told her mother, you got to come out your pocket now. Like I told her grandmother, you got to come out your pocket now. Like I said, I'll help. But the bottom line is you got to come together collectively and make that choice. I wouldn't want to place her in a situation that's going to jeopardize her. But I, I do yeah. I do respect, you know, well, that. That's a, in that's a, a good but option. But I think the wrong. schools, that's a good option, but I think every public school, you know, and this, and this, and, and this, and, and this devil, I'll call him what he is. He is now passing a law which says that if your child goes to a school that mandates a mask, then you can get a voucher to put that child in a school that doesn't mandate a mask. And you know what that is. That's nothing but giving vouchers to these unholy, crazy uh private charter private schools down here in Florida stand. Hey Jay, I got to go, but it's good to hear good from you. Good talking to you. Uh, Be good. Give the family my regards. And and say hi to to, to Alpho. He misses you. Hey Alpho. <laughs> that was hey, Jay. Jay Alpho. Oh Jay, I wanted to ask you about Cuomo. What's your position on Andrew Cuomo? He's a gangster. My boss. That's all you need. That's all. Hey, hey, listen. That's all you need to know. He's a gangster. I, I think the pressure is getting a little too much for him. He's gonna resign, but in the process, because he's a gangster, some people are in big trouble with him. Yeah, so he the goes, bottom line you know, is, he's he's the he he's the type of person that, as a friend used to say to me, I'm gonna get you, and he go he gonna hurt a lot of people. But yeah, he, he got to go because he has, no, he has no support at all within yeah. the, the, the political yeah. community. But he's, he's a thug. So when you're a yeah. thug in the gangster, you play, it, you play it out. But listen, take care of yourself. Okay. Thanks, Jay, for your call. That was our friend Jay. Jay is trying to behave tonight. Um. We're going to move into, uh, we don't have any other calls on the um, Nina Turner, but I think, let me say a couple of things about what Jay had to say. Uh, I know that there are people who, for whatever reason that they have in their heads, don't want to be vaccinated, but I, my position still is, if you are not vaccinated, if you are not protected, you know, maybe some of this alternative stuff can protect you from um, being ill, but it does not, it, it may not um, also uh, protect others from having the virus being transmitted to you, to others. 
and it is a it is a public health crisis that we are in. And I am saying that people who are unwilling to protect the public good ought to be shamed and they ought to be isolated. I mean, Italy just shut down again. And because we didn't do that from the beginning, we're looking at the problem that we have. Um, I'm I'm just sorry. Um, you go to the, the drugstore, you, you go to McDonald's and you eat shit and you don't even know what's in it. You go to the drugstore and, and fill prescriptions and take medicine that your doctor prescribed and you don't know what's in it. Cut the crap. We're going to go into our, our, we only have a few minutes, but I want you to take a listen to this and even if we don't have enough sufficient time to discuss it, this is something I want you to think about going into the new week. These are the same people that if the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was still alive when he stood up before he was gunned down and he said to this country, he said the evils of this country, militarism, materialism, poverty, and racism. Those are those same people. So now if President FDR had... Well, let me be very clear to the folks who are watching tonight. If you think that this is something happening down in Georgia, uh, you are misapprehending the moment that we're living in. If you think that this is something happening to black voters, you still don't quite clearly understand. This is a defining moment for the American democracy. If this is happening in the state capitol in Georgia, it will not take very long for it to visit a state capitol near you. Uh, Because clearly while there is the the reverberations of race, our ongoing struggle in America here, the ways in which poor people, young people uh, are marginalized in various ways. Uh, in, in a real sense, this is about something much more profound than that. It, it is about whether we are who we say we are. Either we're a democracy or we're not. Either we believe in the idea of one person, one vote, or we don't. Either I'm a citizen or not. These are politicians who are trying to hold on to power. That's what this is. It's a power struggle, and they've decided that they're going to hold on to power no matter what, even if it costs the democracy itself. And the only people ultimately who can correct this are the people themselves. And so we've all got to stand up, say no to this. History is watching us, and our children are counting on us. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. As they used to say in my time, he ain't never lied. This is about democracy. This is about the agency of every American citizen. And it has to be applied in the double consciousness of black people all over this country. 
we need to be thinking about even that part that services us. Are we willing to lose it? We have to be thinking about what's happening in 369 laws enacted in states across this country to snuff out black agency in this country. Yeah, that's what they're doing. They don't want you to vote. They don't want you to have a voice. They don't want you to have an accurate history. They don't want your children to thrive. Yeah, there's a lot of rage behind that. And I appreciate Jay thanking me for my service because I am in deep, deep grief, a period of mourning for losing everything that I, I mean, when you think about it, when I think about it and I look at what I lost because I sacrificed, and I want you in this audience, to think about what you have lost in order to lift up this mighty black nation. What have you lost? There are those, I mean, I think about, I think about Renoko Rashidi, and I think about Ella Baker, and I think about All of the people, Ida B. Wells, I think about Marcus Garvey and Malcolm, people who have lost not just their physical lives, but their ability to be bigger than they were personally because they wanted to be bigger for our people. I think about that. We'll see you next week. Have a good week. Every white man in Cusper, Georgia, standing out there in the yard. Threw me in the trunk of the car. About a 30-minute ride, and when they opened up the trunk, I saw these ropes hanging from the tree, nooses. A place designed to look like to hang people. When they put the rope up around my feet, pulled me up in the tree, here comes the deputy sheriff that I lock in the cell, and he's got a knife. And he come up and he grabbed my private parts, and he took his knife and he stuck me. They was going to castrate me and then hang me and burn me. I was 19 years old, and there I am bleeding like a pig, hanging up in the tree, ready to be slaughtered like a hog. And then another white man grab his arm and told him don't do that so we got better things we can do with this nigga I took my shirt rolled it up put between my legs like that when I was in the trunk of the car and squeezed my legs together 
I say myself is on my back and it's dragging me down. Even today, that's been 40-some years ago. And even today now, it's dragging me down. Can't rest, man. I can't rest. I lay in my bed. And I can't rest. Running for my life every night. Somebody's after me. And I don't know what to do. It hurts me to see him in that kind of pain. That pain is there, and it needs to be erased. We commit to the ground these bodies and these souls, and let us forever remember and reflect upon the lives. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power one broadcast at a time all of you that have joined us in our chat room we thank you as well i'm janice grant join us each saturday at our common ground i'll be listening for you speaking truth to power and ourselves Like it's hard.